0: this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number fifty. Fifty episodes. I feel like we should uh, have a drink or a cigar or something. Thanks for joining us through fifty episodes. Uh, tonight's guest is David Rumpfett, who um, is a wonderful poet, as we always have wonderful poets. But this will be a really interesting discussion, and uh, looking forward to that in just a little bit. Um, make sure everything works here before we start going. Uh, we are streaming on uh, Periscope and Twitter again. I should say after a there was a button that I accidentally clicked which made it not work so if you're ever trying to periscope do not click low latency mode if you want to have a high uh, high definition video because it doesn't work in low latency mode now for the warm-up poem today i clicked the random button as always and it came upon um one of my favorite poems from the young poets anthology now this was a 2014 so one of the, the the very first rattled young poets anthology that we did. And um, this is Kofi Adufu, a um, Nigerian poet, age seven, reading this amazing poem called Making Noise. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it once uh, so that you can hear Kofi read it. And then I will read it again because there is a thick accent and um, the sound quality is not the best. So you might not be able to hear it. So I'll play it once and I'll read it myself once. It's short. It's 45 seconds. So here we go. Here is Kofi Adufu reading um, Making Noise.
1: I'm coffee a doofu, making noise, the dead dog nose making noise in the world, full of moths. I can name two moths, belonging to my late friends, a cat and a fowl, Hmm. I see the sun on the face. I tell a guest at the party, where little else is eating, a man's world, he tells me with a wink, this entire time. Today is the kind of memorial, the deep and along from the ice. Home is closer to sunset. Everybody looks
2: at the foot coming back.
0: Again, that was Kofi Adufo reading Making Noise. And here it is. Uh, I'll read it for you again. And I love this line, um, um, I, Whom I Feed the Sun on the Face. I asked him um, if it was feel, if it was a typo, and he said, no, I feed the sun on the face. So here we go. This is Making Noise by Kofi Adufu the dead dog snores making noise in the world full of mounds i can name two mounds belonging to my late friends a cat and a fowl whom i feed the sun on the face i tell the guest at the party where little else is eaten a man's world he tells me with a wink his entire town today is the kind of memorial day collecting shells deep and long from the eyes home is closer to sunset everybody looks at the foot coming back and that is Kofi Adufu at age seven. Uh, he must be, I guess that was 2014, so he would be, um, you know, 14 or, or 13 maybe now uh, from the first Rattle Young Poets anthology. And that's our warm-up poem for today. Hope you enjoyed that. Now, um, let's move on to our guest. Um, David Romfett is a, um, uh, his newest book is Dilemmas of the Angels. And he's also, uh, does a lot of translations of Basque poetry. And he's had poems in five issues of Rattle, including uh, the most well, the the forthcoming issue, uh, number 68, this fall. And um, he's a professor of creative writing at the University of Wyoming, the author of more than a dozen books. He has also served as the Poet Laureate of Wyoming, and with the bands Aspa and the Fire Ants playing the button accordion. You can find more of his work at David Romtvet. That is David, R-O-M-T-V-E-D-T dot com. David Romtvet dot com. .com. And uh, here he is. David Runfelt, how are you doing David?
3: I am fine, thank you very much Tim.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Um do you want to start oh, us it's out? fantastic. Yeah, it's just it's a pleasure to meet all these posts. We met one time at the AWP conference, I remember. Um and you played yes. that button accordion and it really was the most memorable thing of the whole weekend, I think, was you playing that and, and playing a song too or a, you know reading a poem while playing the accordion. Uh, I don't know if you have that
3: Yeah, I I have tended sometimes to try and figure out a way to bring the music and the poetry together. For many, many years, you know, I played traditional musics of the Americas, what we call dance music of the Americas. And I would go to these festivals where you'd hear traditional music, whether it was old-time Appalachian music, Quebec music, Klezmer music, Cajun music. I never met any other poets. And I always thought it was very odd that somehow these worlds were so separate. And one friend, finally, I met a banjo player from Seattle who was a poet, uh-huh. a working poet, you know, like all of us. And I asked her about it. I said, it's so odd. We never meet anyone else. She said, what are you, nuts? We, as poets, are like she high art, right? Uh-huh. And playing this music we play is total lowbrow stuff. So the lowbrow, highbrow worlds don't cross, was her opinion of it. I don't know, but I sometimes think I'm going to figure out a way <laughs> to bring them together a little well, bit. Well, I
0: think, we, you know, we did the slam poetry issue Almost, I think it was like 15 years ago almost. Um, and I've been meaning ever since to do a, a musician poets issue and have a CD accompanying, although maybe that's antiquated. Maybe we should have like a download, <laughs> but at the time, you know, with the slam, has a slam. I know exactly. So I guess we shouldn't have a CD um, tucked in there, but we could have, um, you know, maybe like a QR code to get to a MP3. From the website or something. But to include audio with it would be really cool. That's something we've always meant to do. Um, well, do you want to read a poem to start it out? I don't know what you wanted to start with. Um, you have, we sure, have your New you and Selected. Like, we have Dilemmas of have the an- Angels. and we ha- Or not New and Selected, but your newest book, No Way. And then we have the, the translations, too. Uh, where do you want to start?
3: Well, what would you like? Do you have a personal preference about um, any of this
0: stuff? I don't. I mean, where do you want to, where do you want to go first? That's okay. the only question, really. Well, I mean, there, everything is really fascinating. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about all of it.
3: I am interested a little bit in the fact that for much of my life I have admired poets who I thought were bold, sturdy, strong-willed. Maybe some people might even say aggressive in the expression of social, working on behalf of the social good, as it were. A poet, I I love two poets I've liked quite a lot. Uh, One is Adrian Lewis. I don't know if you know Adrian C. Lewis. is a Paiute poet. And another one that I liked, older, like a generation earlier, was Philip Levine, uh, a poet who's working now, who kind of is in a different place, but I admire a great deal. Um, is Kim Adenizio, you know? And they're they're all poets who seem so bold to me hmm. in some ways, who say what they feel like and don't worry. And I've always felt, oh, Aramba, you're you're too weeny <laughs> in some way, you know. Um, but there's another part of me that thinks all of us as poets have things we can and can't do, ways in which we can speak productively maybe for our society and ourselves. And I've discovered, I think, as I age, I'm getting to be quite the old guy, uh, that often when I simply try to speak out of some kind of love for individuals, for nature and the natural world, for the environment in which I live, the poems seem to actually touch people in some way, more than when I try to say something I think is important or matters. I don't know. So one of the poems in Dilemmas of the Angels that has had this kind of uh, response, or people has elicited a response that seems to be something that surprised me a little bit, because I thought it's, it's pretty simple, is the very first one. It's called Sunday Morning Early. I'll read that one. Sure. Okay. Sunday Morning Early. My daughter and I paddle red kayaks across the lake. Pulling hard, we slip easily through the water, far from from either shore. It hits me that my daughter is a young woman, and suddenly everything is a metaphor for how short a time we are granted. The red boats on the blue-black water, the russet and gold of late summer's grasses, the empty sky. We stop and listen to the stillness. I say... It's Sunday, and here we are in the church of the outdoors. Then wish I'd kept quiet. That's the trick in life, learning to leave well enough alone. Our boats drift to where the cheering of grasshoppers reaches us from the rocky hills, a clap of thunder. I want to say something truer than I love you. I want my daughter to know that through her I live a life that was closed to me. I paddle up, lean out, and touch her hand. I start to speak, then stop. Hmm. That was so. It's pretty simple, you know. It's pretty straightforward in some ways too. One thing that I'd never thought about very much until right now, reading it for you, Tim, is the line where it says um, that I lived through my daughter a life that was closed to me before. Now, a reader, a listener, would have no idea what is that closure. Uh, was that? Uh, a person who had no parents, you know, who was an orphan? Was that a person who was abused in childhood? Was that a person who never knew what life could be through no fault of anyone else, but their own limitations? We can't possibly say. And I realize that a lot of what I try to do is find a way to speak something that will be pretty straightforward on the surface of it, and yet have layers that go down. So... Uh, I don't know if you know the children's writer, Philip Pullman? No, I don't. Do you know this name? No, I don't. Philip Pullman's pretty prominent children's young adult books, he writes. And he wrote a a series called His Dark Materials. Oh, They're I have heard of that, They're based on yeah. John Milton. And the first one was made into a big movie, which the Vatican went nuts about, The Golden Compass, and told Catholics they should not see, because it might lead them to read his books. And... Uh, In his books, he's got this little device, a thing called a lithiometer. It's a truth teller in the vehicle of the book. And the truth teller has layers of meaning, sort of like the Yijing Mm -hmm. in ancient Chinese divination. And so I think as a poet, I'm trying to do that with a surface that, if I put it in my most weenie way, would be a non-threatening surface, a non-fear-inducing surface, but that something else we hope can happen at levels that aren't right there in front of you, if you choose to go there. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that line, because as I was reading the po- the book uh, this morning, I was thinking about that line a lot, because um, uh, for me, having a daughter really changed my life in a way that was just, I mean, I can't even quantify the, the amount of shift. Um, you know, because I, I was like a sort of a like a laid back, like Buddhist, kind of like, who cares? Like, if I die, I don't even care. <laughs> And then as soon as she was born, my entire personality changed. And I, like, I realized that I can't die uh, because I'm responsible for this other thing. And um, it really changed everything about my entire personality. And i am never I can never go back, I think. Like, there's just so much meaning and importance to everything. I did notice, too, that you have a lot of poems about your daughter in this book, Um
3: Yes, it's the first time I've written a number of poems in which she plays a central role. Yeah, so... That was interesting, too. So I was
0: wondering what, what you felt that completeness meant to you. Because for me, it was a sense of meaning that it just didn't exist in life. Like, it was really easy to not... To sort of go around in this sort of abstract and distant way where I wasn't attached to anything. And now I'm sort of permanently attached, like, for better and worse. Like, it makes... Like, I actually have anxiety, which I never had before, Um about, like, the state of the world and things. And... um and, and it's just, it's such a huge shift. So, so what was that completeness for you, though? Because I think it was probably something completely different than it was for me. That's kind of what I was thinking about reading that book or yeah. the poem.
3: Well, most people I know can say something like what you said, a major transformation in their lives when they have children. And I am a person also who generally can't write about anything until it's so far gone from me that nobody else could possibly care about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> in other words, I don't write about her infancy when she's an infant I write about her infancy when she's 30 that kind of Mm. thing or for example there are also a lot of rather grim poems in Dilemmas set in Africa where I lived in the late 70s but those poems were written between 2013 and 2017 so they were written you know 30 35 years after the events that I experienced and so that's part of it and then with the daughter to directly answer your question a little better um i grew up my particular situation was one in which i did have a pretty grim childhood with an emotionally unstable and violent father and my solution to my problems as a child and young person was to not feel things Mm. not have feeling and so a major chore in my adult life has been to learn how to feel and i've felt that when I had a child, I was suddenly presented with the necessity of learning how to feel, to feel what had to be done, to feel what was right to do, to actually experience connection. You mentioned that you were a floating guy. (laughs) I'm not sure this is Buddhism, Tim, but okay, we'll just call it that. And that you suddenly had responsibility and started feeling anxiety. And this weird one, like everybody knows, the stereotypical notion about parenting is that a parent cannot outlive his or her child the child goes on the parent dies first when parents have their children die first it's usually completely devastating because it's out of the realm of what's supposed to happen
0: uh-oh he's he froze for a second hang on hey david yeah we lost you for a second i'm sorry about that how would we lose that there <laughs> i don't know go just, in life. you know what happens is when we do um when we do tests sometimes, it's like a different time. And then this is the time of day, you know, it just became uh, seven o'clock. People are starting to stream all their Netflix and there's not enough Whoa! like community bandwidth, I think. And then, and so, um, so we have a little more dropouts on now that I'm the test, but, um, but you are right. you were talking about your, where'd you lose me? Um, you were talking about your, Oh, I think you're talking about your daughter and, um, and it, it wasn't too far ago. It was, um, I, I was going to say though that, that it's interesting that you bring up, um, that state of, um, you know, having to negotiate emotion, because that was the same kind of thing for me, too, actually. It was that, that you know, I had sort of an unstable childhood a little bit. There wasn't a lot of consistency, and there was a father kind of like that. And so I distanced myself from everything, and then I had to have a connection, which is what the meaning sort of came from. So it's really cool yeah. to hear you put it that way.
3: You know, the other thing that I noticed, I had a dear friend. I went When I went to college, this is an interesting thing, I think. My father filed felony runaway charges, against me because oh, wow. I was a minor and he didn't want me to go to college oh, wow! so there was a whole complicated mess with the police I grew up in Arizona I went to college in Oregon so Oregon police and Arizona police had to get with the dean of the college they had to convince my father to drop the charges and let me go to college my first college roommate was a Canadian young man who I became very close to him and his entire family big family and he came down was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when we were seniors in college and had a very serious case and died fairly young. When he died, we had a huge ceremony with people from all over North America and Europe who were his friends, uh, spreading his ashes in English Bay at Vancouver, BC. And his brother took me aside at one point and said he felt that what came to him from all his experiences with his family and brother was a responsibility to do your best to be of good cheer for others. Hmm. And I thought there's something in that too. When you had a child, I suddenly wasn't allowed to be cranky all the time (laughs) and I couldn't whine anymore because I sort of had some responsibility to help that child not become a whining, cranky person. You know, so that was a big part of it too. Yeah,
0: yeah, you just get hit like with a hammer of responsibility all of a sudden.
3: Um, Yeah, so would you mind if I read Two more of the poems yeah, from the that Yeah, please do, that have to do with and these to, th- things.
0: Yeah, I forgot to tell you but say the page number before so I can flip to it quick. But yeah, go ahead.
3: Okay. So the one I, I thought about two because they represent this family background that I tried to escape and that the poems often deal with one about my father and one about my mother, which is I mean, of course they're about other things, but so it's on page uh five very early birds singing for Jesus you see that Mm -hmm. one here we go birds singing for Jesus Jesus was a carpenter but it's hard to picture him hiding nails mornings at work then sharing a sandwich a coarse joke later walking to the olive grove to take a leak he was also a preacher whose gaze and cool tone made his listeners long to touch him but he was so famously indifferent to sex that it seems pornographic to picture him in bed with a wife his leg thrown over hers, much less an erection. It's easier to speak of the bitter fruit of paternity, that crown of thorns, and what would it feel like to be the one human, only half-born of humanity? When Jesus hung on the cross, there was little for the Roman guards to do. They put down their spears and pulled off their helmets, they cut slivers of wood to clean their teeth, pitched coins at a rock, and bet on which would land closest kicked a wad of rags around in the dust, and lifting their arms above their heads, yelled, "Goal!" At sunset, they lowered the dead man to earth. Here we are then, strange and ordinary, climbing down from our crosses to drive trucks or repair TVs, to cut meat or harvest soybeans. Today, I got a letter from my father who died in 1950, two weeks before I was born. The postman explained nothing My father said his greatest regret was that we would never meet. He'd already started writing when a nurse said, the rain stopped. Wouldn't you like to look out the window? She propped him up with pillows, and he saw the sun on the metal surfaces of the cars, on the galvanized blades of the rooftop ventilators, and on a puddle where a flock of sparrows was bathing. They flapped their wings, and the water flew up, refracting the light. Those birds, he wrote, were singing away like they were giving a concert even if I was the only person who'd come. There's no letter. I was an adult when my father died, an unhappy, not-quite old man. He was a carpenter, but I don't believe he could have worked on a crew with Jesus. He could hardly work with anyone. Still, I wanted to have another chance. I wanted those birds to be singing for him. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting because it doesn't really deal with all the misery of that guy's life and then the life that he helped the rest of us to live in misery too um and my mother was a very passive character who in many ways we feared did not do the job protecting her children that maybe we expect should happen here's the other poem okay Mm -hmm. what page housework it's on page 63 of that book if you want to look at it Go ahead. Got it? Housework. I'm on a stepladder, spackling a crack that opened in the wall after an earthquake. My father did this same work. At home, he hit my mother. How soft her face was. She told him, never again. When he hit his children, she stayed quiet. Even in small earthquakes, there are aftershocks, and this one's no different. The ground shaking again, I climb down the ladder and sit on the floor. My father away, my mother made us sandwiches, then gave the silent blessing. Holding hands, I hope she couldn't read my thoughts. Not that he hit us that often. I mean, maybe, you know, I'm exaggerating. I look out the window and watch the leaves trembling on the trees. For 40 years, she grew quieter. One day whispering that she felt short of breath, that her breathing wasn't right. She couldn't breathe. I get the broom and sweep up breadcrumbs and lint and hair. I scrub the toilet, then attack the ring in the tub. It's hot and sweat drips into my eyes. My mother died without a word to me, nor I to her. Who knows when the house will stop shaking, if it's worth spackling the crack.
0: There are two more poems from Dilemmas of the Angels. That was Housework, David Ronfett's most recent book, you know, David, one of the things I was, I noticed, um, we made the poem of the day today, uh, was on Broadway uh-huh. and, um, oh. in the version to, to preview this episode and, um, in the version that we uh, published though, it was your uncle and your aunt Jane. And then it shifted oh, yeah. in the book to your, uh, to your mother. And, um, so you- what's that?
3: Did you get the poem from a magazine?
0: It was from Rattle. We, we published it in Rattle. Oh, it was the Rattle <laughs> yeah, version. Yeah, it was the Rattle version That's from, great. Uh, from, I don't know, 2008 or something like yeah. that. And, so ask your question. Uh, yeah, so I was just wondering about that transition and how, because I think people are afraid to not be factually accurate in poems. And I always kind of yeah. distinguish in myself between facts and truths. I think the truth is a deeper sort of thing that is true through iterations, but facts are sort of the details that happen to be in this universe. Um, yeah. So I don't I don't worry so much about facts, but this is one big disagreement me and uh, Alan, our founding editor, have. Is that Alan wants things to be factually accurate, and I do not care. So, um, yeah. so where do you stand with it, and why did you make the tra- why did you change that poem? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, this is a fantastic and interesting dilemma that people deal with all the time. I'll tell you a couple of stories that I think relate directly to what you're asking and hope it will answer. First, just as a statement, I don't think poetry is nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's like writing a physics book or a history book, or even it's not a memoir. A memoir is a memoir. Poems are poems. They might be fictional. They might make really clear direct use of the, poet's life or they may not Uh, there's a poem that I wrote once about my second daughter and in the poem the speaker talks about the daughter coming forward when the new child is born the new baby is born and asking about the facts of life and the mother tries to explain the facts of life and the father says I don't think I would have said it that way but you know she's asking and Ultimately, the child becomes very interested in the Bible, especially the virgin birth, because the mother says, someday you're going to have this kind of relation, maybe. And the the girl says, no, if, if my body tells me to do that, I'm not listening. So then there's this funny thing about the Bible and sex and all that. I read this poem, and a woman came up to me afterwards and said how much she liked the poem, and especially liked the portrayal of the two girls and the relationship and what had happened to them as they grew up. And I said, well, you know, I made up the second daughter. I don't have a second daughter. It's for the story. It's this story about what might happen to a child coming into this kind of awareness. And the woman said to me, well, thank you very much, but I will never read a word you write again. wow. Because you've lied to me. You've made up this child that isn't a real child and stuck it in a poem. And a poem should be autobiographical. And I think, as you said, there are many, many people who feel that, that the poet's material is primarily, and perhaps for some readers exclusively, the poet's very real fact-based life. And what I'm trying to do in my work is find a way to speak an emotional truth. Mm-hmm. which may require the transformation of some things to build that truth. So, for example, I also don't write books of poems by writing poems blah, 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 for five years and then throwing them all on the floor and picking what I think are the 50 best. Instead, I, I try to work some kind of thematic motion and some kind of interplay. For example, in Dilemmas, it's hugely important that those Africa poems get crossed with the family daughter poems, that the kind of grace and beauty, the good luck of the family life is crossed with the pain of the time when I worked and lived in Africa and the harshness of the kind of world in which I lived there, Mm -hmm. which was way before I ever was a father or met the person who's the mother of my daughter, you know, that kind of thing. And so to build a thematic material, sometimes it's like, whoops, can't be Jane anymore. It's gotta be somebody else. The same material is there. The Broadway event never really happened with my real father. That would be something he never would have done. That father's a creation for the book, for the emotional veracity of the book, not for my life. Mm -hmm. So, And part of that I think, Tim, I feel pretty strongly, but there's a part of me that thinks maybe it's the residue of being afraid of feeling. Mm Does that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. In other words, I can be a fiction writer as a poet, too. I don't have to just depend upon my feelings. Because you know what? I don't want to feel them. <laughs> uh, yeah. So sometimes I think there's a little bit of that. I'm sure that we all have reasons that are maybe sometimes hidden from ourselves or others as to why we make a doctrinal, an ideological, a literary decision about how to conduct ourselves. And so while I'm aware of that, I still think sometimes it's easier for me to try to create a frame for emotion that feels real. Plus, I think a part of me feels like, well, at least I'm a real writer. I made something up, you know? (laughs) Because I think part of my job is to make things up. (laughs) I know that I'm not dissing autobiographical writing because I know that all writing is making things up because you have to select. There's this Mm -hmm. massive fabric of a billion things happening all the time. You select and you condense to get the thing you want. And our memories are
0: all corrupted and and the frame changes everything no matter what we're talking about and and the perspectives and things like that, too. Um, People are saying people are completely disagreeing with that woman. And uh, Caitlin Buxman says, I wouldn't have told her. And uh, that's an assholey thing for her to say. Her. And I, it makes me wonder, though. in the chat? Looking
4: at the chat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: And um, and and everybody's sort of agreeing on on the chat window. So I'm wondering, because um, that is something that comes up a lot. People like readers, or maybe just lay readers who aren't poets themselves, it might be, tend to want the poems to be real. And um, what do you think about the white lie of just pretending it's real? to a reader like you that mean
3: like one of one of the people in the chat said why did why did you even tell yeah them? yeah
0: exactly exactly said,
3: oh they're doing fine <laughs> but the, my second one's in high school now the other one's off to college uh, <laughs>
0: yeah yeah i mean well i, I mean i wonder i, know, like, I, I mean, have the same compulsion to tell the truth too much i think where it does harm and 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 really it's a serious question though if you um you know, she her her joy that she got out of the poem or her, you know, the meaning for it was lost a little bit because you told her the truth about it.
3: Yeah, I kind of wrecked the poem.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and is there a reason? Is it, like, like, what is the moral thing to do? Might it be just to lie? Is that possible? Or is it always moral to tell the truth when asked? Well, Tim, I'll
3: leave morality in this poem to you, <laughs> okay. but I will say... That it might have been more effective. Mm-hmm. It might not have mattered. I might not have needed. But I got to say, I didn't really plan to tell the truth. It just came out. Yeah. Yeah. Because when she asked without thinking, I just said, Oh, you know, I don't really have a second daughter. Mm-hmm. It didn't occur to me to say, Now I need to tell the truth so she knows that poetry is fiction. It just was, I get a question. So I answered it. So, and in that context, I don't think about risk. Now, there are many places where I would think about, risk factors in telling the truth <laughs> right? and might be more cautious mm-hmm. more careful yeah we live in a world filled with caution and care about how we talk to one another so I am aware of that but in this case I just felt as though I think maybe partially because of teaching and with my students as a teacher of poetry I try to help them feel confident that they can be free to invent that they don't have to be completely bound sometimes they do want to make up especially young poets they like making things up they often start in the world of fantasy Uh, many start in science fiction and come to even poetry from reading science fiction children's fantasy novels and that's what they've read and they start writing in middle school or high school and even as they get to college with undergraduate writers they sometimes are fearful am I allowed to do this when I'm taking a creative writing class writing poems Can I create a character who never existed and then make that character cross with a living character? In some ways, all we're talking about there is what 25, 30 years ago was sort of new way of looking at fiction. You know, the genre bending problem of is this a novel or is this nonfiction? And we've seen it in many negative ways. Mm -hmm. The billion pieces of gold problem in the commercial world. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, or the even the older one, the education of Little Tree, which was an invented native character. Do you know this? I novel? don't.
0: I don't know that one. now. It's,
3: it's the story of a native character man in the Carolinas and his power and majesty as a human being, but he never existed. He was falsely written by an Anglo white American writer who made a pretense of creating this guy and gotten a lot of hot water because he presented it as true. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, "I've just made up this character."
0: Yeah.
3: He said, "This is a person," and gave the name and the book was published that way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are risks and all that, but well, that goes back to to,
0: all the way to Robinson Crusoe, right? Who, who pretended he was actually, you know, lost on an Island. And, and we probably wouldn't know that name unless he did. Like if he told the truth and said, I wrote a story that was fake, um, we wouldn't have that as part of our, you know, cultural heritage, I guess you'd say. Um,
3: yeah, there is something to that too, because people, they're more shocked if it, Really happened.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: Right? You know, something terrible, something explosive, something fascinating, something wild that really happened. For many people, it's wow. And of course, it is wow. If things are strange yeah. that happen like that. But there's another part, which is the inner life of it, is the story told in a way. I've read some things recently where I thought the premise is fantastic. Like if it were a real event not very well told. Mm-hmm. And then I think, but don't you want to give me the inner life of the event a little bit too, so I can really become engaged fully with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe that's a good transition because, um, to the, to the book of translations that you have, the, the um, oh. Guernico Gurnicaco Arbola. Um, yeah, <laughs>
3: good job. Did Tim. I do
0: that even close and not even close? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Oh, okay. That's
0: good. <laughs> and, um, yeah. because, um, because, um, and I can't remember how to how to pronounce it in the uh, in the Basque either. you
3: want me to say? His you name? you please say it for me. Okay, the author's name is Yoshimari Mari Yeah, there you
0: go, <laughs> Yoshimari Mari um, yeah. so, so, but but he led in a life that you would almost think is is fiction. I mean, it was such Oof. a rich. I mean, by I think I was counting in your uh, forward. By the age of thirty six, he was exiled. I think five separate times from different yeah, places, yeah and um just what a, you know started um can can you tell us a little bit about um about about this poet that you translated
3: well, this poet is a Basque poet, uh Basque literature and Basque culture is to some degree still a little known in the United States and at large in the world, but getting to be more and more known. Uh, The 19th century was a grim time for Basque people. Some people would know of the Carlist Wars, which were wars over the succession of the Spanish monarchy, and whether Spain would move towards a more French-style pre-capitalist, moving into capitalist society, a more business-oriented society rather than a traditional church-run society. So Carlos was a pretender to the throne, and the Basques supported Carlos because he would guarantee their rights of autonomy. The historical rights of the Basque people. This poet, Yoshimari, was born in 1820. He fought in the first Carlos Wars. He was a soldier in 1844 as a 14 year old kid. He ran away from home, which was in Madrid. His parents had moved to Madrid, hoping to send him to a fancy prep school to become a priest. But he just took off and went back to the Basque country and enlisted in the Carlos armies and fought there. He was injured several times, of course, exiled when the Carlos lost. Uh, He ends up in France, ends up fighting in the 1848 French Revolution, gets, it loses, gets exiled, goes to England, comes back to Spain because a Spanish general who admired his work, he was a singer-songwriter, really, a troubadour of the time, and played guitar and wrote poems that were set to music, uh, brought him back, the general got him a pardon so he could come back to the Basque country and Spain because the part he was from was governed by Spain. Then he got in trouble again because he wrote Guernicaco Arbola. And this is a great classic thing. Arbola, if people speak Spanish or French, it means tree. They will recognize, oh, that's arbol in Spanish. or That's arbre in French. It's not a Basque word. It's a 19th century. It's like they spoke their version of what we call Spanglish in the U.S., only it's Basque Mm. and Spanish mixed up. Like the word for tree is suites. So it should be Guernicaco Suitza. But he wrote Arbola. We just call it Arbola, everybody, too bad. You know, that's what he wrote in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, he ends up in flight again, and he goes to South America because he's kicked out of Spain. He uh, gave a reading and performance of his songs and poems at which 6,000 people came. Tim, picture this. You know, it's like 1854, 55 in the country, in the Basque country, really rural, and 6,000 people show up, and he sings Guernicaco Arbola, and they all get down on their knees and take their berets off and swear allegiance to mass freedom forever. <laughs> Hence the Spanish state says, get out. He lived nineteen twenty years in South America and finally came home and died not long after coming home, a kind of dispirited, broken guy. There was a second set of Carlos Wars. You know, it, it never worked. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. Basque freedom and autonomy. And then, of course, we all know what happened in the 20th century, another dictatorship in Spain, Primo Videra, and then Francisco Franco, and it's never ending for these Basque people. So now this poet is in some ways like a kind of Walt Whitman figure, the beginning of something or the transmission of some great grace that is Basque. Except that he was really a conservative, too, you know. The work is not modernist in any way. It's all in this very old-fashioned, formal rhyme and meter. So in that way, he's Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson at the same time. The way we have these two kind of poles of our 19th century poets that we think are really central to the identity of American poetry. Maybe Yoshimari was kind of both of them at the same time. He's the bohemian of Whitman, the casual guy with a sloppy hat, you know, and the Democratic vistas. But he's also Dickinson, quite severe and formal about how he was going to produce this work.
0: Hmm. Well, I hope that's
3: not too many words for the people in the no, chat. No, not at all. Crazy. I think this is fascinating. Um, and I, to I
0: wanted to ask more about Basque culture and just in general. Um, yeah. But but why don't you read a poem to start like Just something that would one be of good his. Yeah, one of his And then I'll ask you just to, to explain what, what the Basque culture is Because I didn't know much about it And found that fascinating Reading just on Wikipedia uh, earlier um, But why don't you read a poem Just to get everybody a sense okay. of what's going on here
3: So an early one Which reflects sort of A couple of the central interests he had A lot of his poems are either about I love the Basque country They're like patriotic poems They're poems that kind of make you cringe sometimes because we're not really, in our time right now, a culture of high patriotism. We're a little nervous about patriotism. It can lead to bad things. But for him, because he was struggling for the autonomy of the Basque nation, which has never Mm -hmm. had autonomy, you know, for 2000 years since the Romans invaded, was a big deal. But his other big deal was he was like this cruising cafe nightclub guitar playing guy who had a different girlfriend every time you turned around. <laughs> so this is uh, one called The Basque Singer on page 31 okay. of the book that you have there, mm-hmm. Tim. Yep. The Basque Singer. Do you want to hear any of the Basque or just the English?
0: Why don't we do both? That'd be cool.
3: Really? Yeah, All sure. of the Basque? Okay. Well, it's a short poem, Cantari- right? Or is it a longer poem? Yeah, it's not long. Yeah, let's do no, both. None of them are super long. That'd be great. Euskalduna. Cantari- to- okay, here we go. Okay. Guitarra sarcho bada, nereza laguna. Onela e artiste Euskalduna. Egun baten pobre kantare you can hear the rhythm in it right so clear Nice da italia or bat francia bietan biliatu dut anit malicia ikusten bad ere nik mundu guztie beti maitatu kode euskalherria jona maten badit nareo xasuna izango det oraindik andre gaibat ona hemen badet francesa interesaduna baina nik naya godet utzik euskalduna Tetan That's the Basque. Yeah, that's beautiful. Alright, here's the English yeah. called the Basque Singer. An old guitar, my only friend. Here's how it goes for the Basque musician. Broke one minute, a gentleman the next. Either way, I spend the day singing. I might be in Italy but it's the same in France, malice and deceit. Let's say I see the whole world. It'll always be Euskalaria I love. If the Lord grants me good health, a good woman will still have me, like this French one, rich. But honestly, I would prefer a Basque girl, scuffy, scruffy, broke. Farewell, Euskalaria. I won't see you for maybe five, six years. Well, it's not forever. Here's my last request. Lord, take pity on me. Let my bones rest in my beloved homeland.
0: Oh, that was great. So
3: that's very typical of the kind of thing that he does. And always about, will I ever go home to Euskal mm-hmm. which is the Basque for the Basque country? Will I ever get there? Let my bones rest at home. Let me die at home, you know. And in the end, he finally did die at home. He made it home. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny because translating him, you know, I knew there's no way I was going to be able to do the rhyme and meter. The languages are so different. And when I teach it, there's some interesting things. I've taught Basque at the university. And, um, you know, all sorts of students take it because I don't teach it through the language departments. I teach it through cultural studies. So it's part history and part language. It's not like a standard just learn the language class. And I get all kinds of students who are interested, some of Basque heritage. Like if you start learning Basque, the first thing the teachers will ask is, who's your family? Because why would anyone learn Basque if you're not Basque? you know that kind of thing but the language doesn't have gender it's really interesting so sometimes when I have transgender students they're so happy that for the first time in their lives they're going to learn a language that has no gender of any kind in the language and it's really interesting to try to figure it out like even in translating because there's no he she kind of thing anywhere so things can be presented and you have to decide what will you say in English? Will you call that a male voice or a female voice or both voices or a collective voice? How will you figure out to bring the mentality into languages whose sensibility about human beings is dramatically different from one another?
0: Yeah, It's really yeah,
3: interesting. It, I, Translation's a nightmare.
0: <laughs> I bet. Yeah, that was one of the things I had <laughs> no idea until I looked at the Wikipedia page that it's not, um, it's not derived from Indo-European at all which yeah, um that's, that's right. just mind blowing to me. Um I don't know. Like like every language almost you know that we that we speak and I mean besides for, you know, there's languages all over of course, but but to have a language in Europe that's not Indo-European. I took Sanskrit in college for a semester. And Sanskrit in India is Indo-European. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. It is the It's so to have a language that has no relationship and dating back to the dawn of agriculture on the I- Iberian Peninsula. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is wild.
3: It really is. So, you know, Basque people sometimes joke about it because a lot of Basque people fled first with the colonial explorers, as it were, to the Americas, where they were very powerful people. They were shipbuilders, the first ironworkers. Shakespeare mentions, he calls it the Biscayan blade, Hmm. which is where the first ironworks were in Biscaya, uh, which is... um, Uh, Bilbao people would know that probably because of the Guggenheim museum it's become kind of a tourist spot but um, it it, so many people came here and they when they went back the Spaniards did this to some degree too they had this kind of I don't know whether you'd consider it just a flat-out stupid racist term or just dumb because it's a different cultural time and historical frame but those people were called Indianoac. that means Indians Right? They came back from the Americas. But there's a serious side of that for Basque people where they consider themselves to be the native Europeans, the first Europeans before there was a Europe. And the only ones who aren't Indo-European, there's no romance connection, that the only language on the Iberian Peninsula that is not romance and the only one in all of Western Europe that is not Indo-European The only other one even close, if you think, would be Turkish. We're not sure whether, you know, Turkey is part Central Asia and part Europe, kind of. Mm -hmm. But that's the other one that's non-Indo-European. So it's a remarkable thing. And a lot of his poems are about preserving the language. What happens if our language goes away? Do we go away? Because without our language do we cease to exist? The word for being Basque, Erskaldun, means one with the Basque language. Dun hmm. in Basque means with. So a pregnant woman is called our dun, which means with child. Oh. Like in, Americans used to say that, she's with child. So that dun, with Basque. You don't speak Basque, you're not Basque. Me, I'm married into a Basque family, but I speak Basque, so I'm Basque for them. Oh. That's another issue. In the U.S., because of the way identity politics works in our country now, that would be unheard of. I can't just walk up and say I've decided to be something else yeah,
0: yeah. in terms
3: of U.S. history and the horrors and pain of our history. But for Basque people, it is the language hmm. that is most centrally the determinant of your cultural affiliation. Wow. And that's kind of remarkably, um, what would you say? It, it gives us opportunities we don't have. Yeah. You know, I have this chance if I want to say that well, I've decided I'm going to learn Basque and be part of that world, and they're delighted. Mm -hmm. But, of course, they're a tiny culture. So, you know, you count your friends pretty dearly when you're tiny like that. And it matters a lot if somebody cares enough to join up as it were,
0: yeah. That's Tons that's,
3: I, I, that's that. as a
0: poet, you know. That's beautiful to to have the can, language be the the source of, of, of yeah. identity. I guess, yeah. That's, but
3: can you imagine American, a contemporary American poet writing a bunch of poems about the necessity to save American English?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't make any sense.
3: Um, it just doesn't. It'd be what is that about?
0: And so, so your wife is Basque, and that's how you got into this culture. Basque is that family, yeah, yeah, yeah? And yeah. and I guess is there a there's a. Um, a group of bass people in Wyoming? Is that what? how that happened?
3: Yes. Uh, there was a second wave. I mentioned that a lot of bass people came because they were shipbuilders. and They were the first whalers in Europe. They also pretty clearly, maybe somebody in the chat knows some about this too. You ought to check and see if anybody pops in. But um, they followed cod. They found the cod fishing banks off the uh, east coast of Canada. Huh. And they were very wealthy and powerful because of cod fishing and whaling. And they wouldn't tell people where they went to get all this cod. Ah. (laughs) Uh, And the whale, one of the great whales is called the Biscayan whale. Hmm. There is a whale called Biscayan because they migrated up the coast of the Basque Country. So that was the first one. But the second was the California Gold Rush. Hmm. And that brought a lot of people to California who didn't come directly from the Basque Country. They came from Argentina and Chile where they'd lived for 100, 200 years. They came to the Gold Rush, but most of them then spread north and east so there are big Basque communities all over North Central California and then up through Reno, Winnemucca, you know, all the Nevada, Elko, Nevada, right on to Salt Lake City and across to Rock Springs, Wyoming. Mm. And the, so there are two communities here. I hope this isn't too boring to people. I,
0: I think it's fascinating. And the whole point uh, of the show is to fascinate me. So go you ahead. Know,
3: <laughs> <laughs> so the second one was people who actually came through Ellis Island, like other European immigrants. Mm-hmm and ended up here coming across from new york and that group came to north central and northeast wyoming so there are two batches of Basque people in wyoming the part i live in north central northeast along the bighorn mountains mm-hmm. and they're almost all northern basques in the old days they would have said french Basque and spanish bass hmm. now people say northern and southern because they don't want the identity to go to the two nations yeah but we really don't even know how many how many Basque people ever got to the united states because if they came through ellis island or even entering through U.S. through a customs port, if they had passports, they would have been Argentine, Chilean, French. There was no such thing as a Bass passport. Yeah. So you couldn't. The people who try to figure it out go through the rolls and read the names and try to just say, "Oh, that's a Bass name. That's a Basque name." You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. I was wondering about that because the the um, you know, the book was published by the University of Nevada Reno, and there is sort of you yeah. can see, as you mentioned, places that. The, the west there was a ring of, of Basque people coming up uh from there um yeah and, 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 and Basque country straddles i don't know if people know but it's the the northern part of spain and it straddles the french spanish border um, yes so pe- people, people can, often
3: say it's between france and yeah. spain i love the image yeah which is kind of real metaphorically because there's not much space between those two (laughs) it's about that much yeah
0: yeah, exactly
3: so when you say that you get this nice metaphor i mean it's just the way we talk but it really is oh they're getting crushed by those Mm -hmm. two big nations yeah 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 now of course it's better it's way better now for best people partially because franco was a horrifying dictator the last of the fascists you know hitler and mussolini go down and franco manages franco and in portugal too salazar they last till 1975 which is crazy, but it meant that the reaction to them was an opening of those societies. And the Spanish Constitution gives Basque people the right to use their language in their schools, mm-hmm. which is unheard of, because under Franco, you went to prison for speaking Basque.
0: How, how do the French treat the Basque? Is, is that, is, do they do the same kind of welcoming with the language? Historically, they have
3: done the same, except they tend to use education, economy, finance, opportunity, more than just torturing and killing people mm-hmm.
0: yeah
3: the spanish side tended to use torture and killing yeah a great more yeah. mm-hmm. but the french were equally uh vigilant about tamping down regional cultures largely after the french revolution mm-hmm. that's what really led to it because there was at the time of the french revolution something like 20 percent of the population of france could speak french
0: mm-hmm. oh wow i didn't know that
3: so yes it was a huge deal and there is a major study done right after the revolution where a particular priest, French priest, was sent out from Paris. There really wasn't a French rev- revolution, I don't think, Tim. There was a Paris revolution, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and then it, they created a France. And part of creating was he came back with this big report traveling around the national entity and said, you know what? Nobody can speak French in this country. Hmm. We're not going to have a nation until everybody can speak French. Oh wow! And so they instituted schools, and they made the rules that you cannot use the um, the regional languages in the schools, in the public sphere, hospitals, courts, all that. So, for example, now in the northern French country in France, you can't go to public school in Basque. If you want to go to school in Basque, you have to go to private school. Oh wow! It's not outlawed, mm-hmm. but in the southern part of the country, the public schools in the Basque country are in Basque. Hmm. And Spanish is taught as a second language. Of course, everyone can speak it. I mean, they're surrounded by Spanish. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a problem. People are so bilingual. Some young people have said to me when I've kind of argued for try to separate, could you speak Basque now and then speak Spanish? Because if you're an American who doesn't speak Spanish, it's very hard to learn Basque without it. Hmm and many of the young people will say to me you don't understand we we don't speak spanish and Basque as two things they're one language we spent our entire lives speaking the two of them so they will just go back and forth all the time constant back and forth and i think maybe the americans have to face up to the fact that they have to learn spanish first
0: <laughs> yeah um, well, you want to read one more poem from this book, maybe? Um, yeah,
3: sure. What do you you have one in mind? Did you look at it? I
0: did. Um, I one? don't know if I could pull out one that I'd recommend off the top of my yeah. head, but whatever you want to do.
3: Okay. Let's see. You know there's an interesting one that might be um, maybe this one, which is interesting because it also leads us to problematic issues in translation. Hmm. It's called Belle Serena. You want to hear the Basque again or just the English?
0: Um, how long? What page is it, first
3: of all? It's
0: on page
3: 104 and 105. It's four yeah, let's, stanzas. Yeah, let's do both we'll again. Yeah, they're short okay. again. Yeah. Belserena, here's Belserena. Okay. Belserena naicela, kalyendi ote, enai suri ederra, arra soyadute, eder surigalanta paushuan amavi. Belserena graciosa miliaeta bi. b. Belserena naicela, subnere shateko lenagosenden bora Belzak eta zuriak mendien ardiak. Zuk ere istituzu ventaia gustiak. Belzeréna graciosa parerik gabea mundu gustiak dio serala nerea. Munduak jakin eta suk ez jakitea. Ondo egiten desu disimulatzea. Sharritan amodios disut begiratzen arreta gustiakin errespetatutzen. Begiak Belzes beltzak. Itz hori There's a lot of Spanish in that mixed up in there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, So I've translated it as black. Melzerena, black. Here it is, and then we'll say a few words about it. The street gossips, say I'm black. Not a lovely white. They're right. White beauty queens, a dozen at every step. Black women who've got away with words, two in a thousand. As to me being black, it took you a while to notice. She's black. Black and white sheep on the mountain. You can't have everything. Incomparable black beauty. Everyone says you're mine. You do a good job pretending not to know what the world knows. Again and again, I look at you. Really look. Bow lovingly before you. Eyes blacker than black. Your way with words. Such love is not for little boys. Oh, that is a cool one. Yeah. It's it's very weird because, you know, at that time in their history, they wouldn't There wouldn't have been African heritage people in the Basque country hardly at all. Basque country was fairly isolated from the kind of currents of um, mixture that the Americas have been marked by and the creation of new peoples out of mixing and some isolation of peoples. So belts in Basque can also mean uh, dark haired, dark eyed, dark skinned, Hmm. dark person, dark spirit. uh, And... Belts also was a way like if we read Elizabethan literature, sometime we know that for a ruling class, upper class woman in the Elizabethan period to have tan skin, dark brown skin, was shameful. Hmm. Like only poor peasants, only people who had to work in the fields in the sun had that. That's in the past too. So he might be saying black means a peasant woman uh, rather than an African woman. Mm-hmm. And for a bass person, it would still be the word belts, but it could be he's mocking the pretensions of the upper class rather than mocking the baloney of some racist impulse in the culture. It's hard to tell. And when we bring it forward now, a hundred and seventy five years, where are we? It could be either thing.
0: Yeah, the ambiguity is fascinating in that in that poem. That's a that's a good one.
3: Yeah. Yeah, pretty interesting, and that he, you know, sides with her. Whatever it is that is her outcast quality, we don't know. But the speaker sides, and then of course the joke about every Basque person's a sheep herder <laughs> when he said black and white sheep on the mountain. You can't have everything, you know. Whatever that means. <laughs>
0: yeah, so. yeah, uh, yeah. That was really cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing those, and and uh, beautiful to hear in the um, in the Basque. Um, yeah. do you want yeah. to, we you have Why? the new the new book coming up? no way, and we have um just a little bit of time left, but do you want to um talk a little bit about about that it, It's interesting um you say at the beginning, I don't know if I can find it, um, you say that it's a um um an American Tao te Jing yeah and um and, and it reminded me of weirdly of um, um I'm not gonna say the name Jose Marie, Jose Marie.
3: Yeah, Yoshimari. Yoshimari.
0: Yeah, um, you know traveling so much around the world, and then you've lived in in Africa. You have poems in, in "Dilemmas of Angels" based in I think Nicaragua. Um,
3: yeah, I worked in Nicaragua. And, for and a then, while, too. And, and you have
0: the angels in the last book, and then you're going back to the Tao in this book. You, yeah, you really travel around, um, at least you know mentally as as, as yeah. much as, as yeah. he did. Do you find that traveling is? Um, and living in different places and experience different cultures is, is a really central part to, of poetry to you. Yes. Yeah. Should I say more? Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, well, you could just either say more or you could read um, some poems from well, this. Well, let me, I will say more,
3: <laughs> Tim, because I can always say. Okay. Um, yes. I, I grew up in Southern Arizona and I grew up in a very mixed Anglo-Chicano, Anglo-Mexicano community. Uh, and so I had a sense of, I don't know, being in that mixed world right from the get-go as a kid. And when I grew up, it suddenly hit me, in high school, we were kept isolated from one another a lot. And I didn't notice, I don't think, this is something that people are talking about a lot now, white privilege, that you get a benefit by being the Anglo. We didn't use the word white, it was Anglo. But the benefit often, I think, like a lot of young people, I didn't notice till I left. And then it suddenly hit me how unfair the treatment had been to all of us, because we were stripped of our togetherness, what we would have gotten from each other in some ways. So a lot of my life has been to try to find a way back towards the integration of those two parts of my childhood—the border part that's Mexican and United Statesian. Uh, so that's very influential on in my work. But I, I wasn't trained as a poet ever. I, I couldn't imagine being. A, I didn't grow up in a house with books or reading. My dad didn't finish elementary school. I went to college as an American studies, politics, history largely major and that's what i was interested in but i started thinking about poetry and i discovered through people on the west coast you you probably would know that in the 50s 60s 70s asian poetry was very influential for west coast poets from the buddhist poets from what was often called the bear shit in the woods school of poetry (laughs) Mm -hmm. right and um i i got really interested in the Chinese poets. I've read them all my life, the poets from the 7th to the 12th century of the Common Era. And so suddenly I found myself wanting to do something after writing Dilemmas and thought, I think I'd like to just go through the Tao and write modern versions of the Tao. And the way I did it is I tried to write pretty directly what would happen if you wrote it now. And then i put it away for months, and I'd take it out, and without looking at the Dao, I'd revise my poem. Then I'd put it away and take it out without looking at my first uh, version and revise the second one. Hmm. Then the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. So it's sort of like a personal version of the cocktail party game telephone.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: Right? And the poems kept getting farther from the original Dao. And finally I started just leaving them completely to themselves and trying to make them be what it would be now. Mm -hmm. But I still think there are links that are really important to think about and the power for me of poetry to transmit us across the barrier of death and time so that I have some relationship with some, I don't know, Han Shan. You may know Han Shan, Cold Mountain in English. This crazy wandering hermit, monk, Buddhist poet from a thousand years ago you know, that I feel kind of like is some companion. And then there are weird little voices too. Like for example, we think a lot about the ways in which some peoples are submerged in cultures. Who doesn't get to speak? Whose voice do we not hear? Who gets buried a thousand years later? But if you dredge around enough, you find some of these hidden voices. There's a guy named John Balaban. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. this poet. Yeah, and you know, he's done these, uh, this work with Vietnamese women's poetry from a long time ago. Voices that were completely locked away from us—unbelievable work to bring this back. These voices. So, the ancient times speak to me a lot too. That's part of why I did it.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to hear you talk about that because that was my experience reading um, the poems that I did of it. you could hear the echoes moving forward. Um, it was sort of like listening—really like listening to sort of a shout of the Tao teaching Ching, um, like across the canyon. You can't make out all the words, but it was sort of there too. It was really fascinating yeah, it's book. So yeah. Like
3: that like that do you want to hear any of those yeah why don't you, you read, have, we only have a how little much bit time of, do we have?
0: just maybe you know five or ten minutes but want you read two of them maybe
3: yeah let me read one in case there are people there who don't know the dao yeah maybe the very first one in the dao it's the most famous one mm-hmm. you know that everybody has heard at some point if they get near this book uh and then i'll read the the one i did And then maybe we'll get to one farther away. Maybe one you can pick and we'll be done. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so number one, the Tao doesn't have names, they're just numbered. And number one goes like this. This is in Stephen Mitchell's translation. And I think the Stephen Mitchell translations are tremendously fine, really good. There are lots of translations and his have a nice feel for what an American reader might take. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. Free from desire, you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, you see only the manifestations. Yet mystery and manifestations arise from the same source. This source is called darkness, darkness within darkness, the gateway to all understanding. Mm So that's the Stephen Mitchell, first, number one in the Dow, And mine is, number one, is I gave them names. It's called The Names, the first one. No way I'm telling you my secrets. I'm not even telling you my name. It's David. The Lord told Adam to name everything, then said, but when you talk to me, there's no need to use my name. I'm the only one here. It's not as if things were so mysterious. A fool knows that when he sees the moon shimmer in the black water of a midnight pond, it's not the real moon. The sun rises and the water goes blue. The moon, so clearly present moments before, grows dim as the water grows bright. Darkness lending the other a sliver of light. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, that's it's such a great echo of, of that poem in there. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It really is. It's just
3: yeah. kind of <laughs> nutty to think about doing it this way. And, you know, it starts as a big joke, mm-hmm. kind of. And part of it is because those old Chinese poets, the before Zen Buddhism, when Buddhism first came to China, they were kind of jokesters, tricksters. They were often filled with whacked out humor. You know, they were always getting drunk and falling out of boats and ponds <laughs> somewhere while looking at the moon. And, You know, one of the most famous lines in Buddhism is, don't mistake the pointing finger for the moon. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Mm -hmm. and so the joking, it starts right out with a joke. It's like tone setting and then it suddenly somehow gets more serious, becomes more Tao-like.
0: Yeah, I was wondering about the, um, you know, about making it American. Like, what do you think? I think about this a lot because we, you know, we get poetry submissions from all over the place and reading other poets. Like, what is the difference between an American poet versus other poets? To to me, I kind of feel like um, American poetry is much more grounded in time. I kind of feel like that is what, um, like we have very concrete sort of objects and like we're setting a time and place in a way that there's a timelessness to to poetry from other other cultures. Do you do you feel like that, or, or how do you con- conceive of what 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 what's American about the book? <laughs>
3: <laughs> what a bad man you are, Jim. Uh, what's American about the book? Well, here are a couple of things I think about that. One, I think to root, and it's kind of what you're saying, to root in specificity is something that has happened from the rise of modernism in American poetry. Uh, And you remember the painters who were called the Ashcan school, Mm -hmm. who would paint ugly things, and how poets also became very involved in this idea. Is it possible to not just write pretty flower poems? Is it possible not to write only about elevated things? So that was a modernist impulse that I think really took root strongly in American poetry Mm -hmm. and took root along with the painting school, the Ashcan school, so that our work is also very visually driven. Yeah, I know that's true for me, Mm -hmm. and I think it's true for a lot of American poets that you find your way through visual imagery as much as through sonic properties. Mm. You know, the whole fight about, is a poem a poem if it didn't rhyme? that we thought was done thousands of years ago. But, you know, in our particular cultural background, there's some baggage still about that. But the imagistic way of thinking is a very beautiful way to associate one thing with another. So I think that's a very American thing. And I think specificity is, and I also think what you said, a focus on what this experience is. And that comes from the beginning, from Whitman, from... William Carlos Williams and that lineage, yeah. as opposed to, say, the more British lineage, uh, like the T.S. Eliot line that went to Europe, yeah. the ones that said, I'm going to be an American, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And it, like when I mentioned Kim Adonizio in the beginning, her work, I think her work very much comes in that line of this, mm-hmm. we are here now, here now.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a great example.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, good answer. and And yeah, yeah. Very fascinating. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm trying to find a poem that I could recommend. I can't find one right away. So why don't you just pick something?
3: From No Way? Yeah,
0: From No Way to close us out. Whatever you want to like close on.
3: Oh, interesting. Let's see what a good one would be from No Way at the end. Uh, let's see. Oh, you know what might be nice? Because you started out talking about children. I read the daughter poem yeah. and you mm-hmm. spoke about your experience becoming a father. There's one of these in the book. There's a daughter poem. Um, it's called At the Creek. Should I go ahead and read yeah, it? Yeah, what,
0: what page is it on? Do you know?
3: Well, I don't know the page numbers because I don't have a book <laughs> Yeah,
0: yet. Maybe I can find it on the table of contents. <laughs> Let me see.
3: It's about number 8, 9, 10, okay. something like that the... in it.
0: Ah, here uh, we go. 16, it says. It?
3: 16. Yeah. Oh, I'm way off. <laughs> at the Creek. Ready? Yep, go ahead. Okay. I go to the creek with my daughter. We squat at the water's edge and look around. Some pebbles, a few sticks. A cottonwood leaf. With these, we make a tiny world in which nothing moves. Would that be heaven, then, where all things come to rest? It's as if I stand once again by my desk on the first day of school, and the teacher calls my name, and I say, Here. She looks up and smiles at me, and I at her. Here, I say again. Here.
0: Uh, That was a wonderful poem. That was from That was At the Creek, Poem number eight yeah, the, from uh, No Way, uh, David's forthcoming book. And, and when is that book uh, coming out from LSU Press?
3: Uh, it's scheduled for next late winter, early spring. You know, it's their spring list. So <laughs> they usually come out February, Marchish.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, the really, everybody program. should look forward to this book. I read a, a whole bunch of these. I didn't read the, all the way through, but uh, but I loved it. So um, everybody pick up a copy when it comes out and, and pick up Dilemmas of the Angels, too. And uh, the book of best translations, a wonderful poetry, great discussion. Thanks so much, David. It's great to have you as Thank a guest you. today. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much, Tim. And thanks to everyone who would watch us <laughs> blabber at one another for this time. And I'm very grateful that anyone might even <laughs> dare to listen. So
0: yeah, well, I, I feel the so same all. way. I feel like I'm just having a fun conversation, enjoying some poetry, and that people want to watch, too. is a, a wonderful blessing. So thanks so much, David. It was great to talk to you.
3: Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Okay, so that was uh, David Romsvet. And, um, once again, you can find his, um, uh, more of his books. He has, uh, over a dozen books, uh, David Romsvet, that's R-O-M-T-V-E-D.com. Um, so check that out when you can. Um, I had a lot of fun with that and I hope you did too. Um, let's move on to the open mic, not the open mic, the, well, it is open mic, the open mic prompt section of the night. And, um. Uh, let me show you the uh, phone numbers. Let's get rid of David. by David. Um, the phone number, as always, is 818-850-7727. Give that number a call. Let it ring a few times, um, and I'll call you back. Or uh, send a Skype message to Rattle Poetry, all one word, if you'd like to read. And once again, I will call you back when the time is right. And if you if you wrote a poem based on the prompt that you'd like to share... Send it to that email address, open at rattle.com so everybody can read along as you um, as you read it. Now this week's prompt was let's move uh, let's move this down. Hang on one second. boop. Okay. this week's prompt was uh, write a poem about a phobia you have. Write a poem about a phobia you have. So once again, if you did, Email it to, you get got plenty of time, email it to com right now, and then send me a phone call to uh, 818-850-7727 or a Skype message to Rattle Poetry, all one word, and I'll give you a call and have you read it for uh, everybody on air here. Now, um, my poem for this week, I'm working on short forms, which helps because I don't don't spend a lot of time on it, <laughs> is, um, is so we have, um, i just tell you the background, we um we took Sunday off. We took the weekend off, actually, pretty much completely. Uh, I played some tennis. We went for hikes. I watched Hamilton for the first time after too many years. That was amazing. It's you know, A lot of things are not all they're cracked up to be. Hamilton was. And um, then we went for a hike Sunday morning. So I didn't do um, uh, Poach Respond Live this week. I thought it would be nice to have a week off or a weekend off. And um, <laughs> well, while, while I was doing that, um, I sat down for just a second and um, – got right back up to to put away the the food or something. And and Megan said, um, you're always moving. Can't you just sit still? (laughs) And uh, I kind of realized that is my phobia of sitting still. Um, Usually I have like three things going on at once. Um, Even as I'm working, I'm working on like three projects at the same time. And after everybody goes to bed, I work. I'm kind of a workaholic. And so I thought maybe fear of idleness is my phobia. We also have ants going on, an ant invasion in our kitchen which happens every summer here in the, uh, the mountains overlooking the high desert because uh, they're, they're desperate for some water. And um, so I combined the two, and this is my poem for the week. This is Theasophobia, Fear of Idleness. The ants in the cupboard keep moving until dead, holding the abamectin high above their heads. Kind of dark, but that's my poem for the day. Theasophobia. Now, Megan's poem is Agoraphobia. It's shameful, the secret joy at seeing a closed sign. The way the phrase stay home glitters like Christmas. I hide my relief the way one might spit a bite of gristle into a napkin. Why am I like this? Is it because as a chubby teenager with bad posture, I learned that groups of people meant whispers? That walking through one was like parting a sea that refused to be parted? Is it because I watched too many documentaries about serial killers? In public, I tug at my clothes, smooth my hair, catch sight of myself in a window, and cringe. I want to ask cashiers what they think of death and love, and when they ask me, how are you, I want to say it's complicated, because isn't it always... Once, a friend sitting in my backyard asked me, don't you ever want to just do something? I look at the trees and the birds and thought, this is it. This is what I'm doing. He left to go to a bar, and I stayed to listen to the language of crickets. No questions, no answers, just music. That was Megan's poem for today, Agoraphobia. Now let's see what you all did. Uh, we have a whole bunch of people... Um, Lined up to call in. Who was the first on the list? Let's see. Caitlin bucksbum has got a poem ready. Let's call up Caitlin. Let's find Caitlin's poem, too. Hello. Hey, Caitlin. How are you doing okay. tonight? Pretty. Oh, hang on. Let me pull you in. You're not on yet.
5: Hey, man. <laughs> the, the ringer makes me jump. I'm, like, so focused on what's being said.
0: <sighs> well, we got you. We got you. Um, yeah, yeah. I should always tell everybody, you know, that I'm going to call okay. from the future, so you you'll be surprised when I call you. Um, you're the expert, so you know it's coming, the surprise. But it, it always and comes. And still, and
5: still. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, so,
0: so, what was your phobia for this week, Caitlin?
5: Okay, so I could not bring myself to write a poem about a specific phobia <laughs> because. It's a phobia, but also I was like, the, the internet doesn't need to know what I'm afraid of. So point. I wrote a poem that references phobia that I didn't intend to write for this, but I wrote it and I was like, you know, you know what? I think I will share this. So okay. it's still pretty fresh and still. awesome. Let's go for
0: it. So it's What We Bury, and it's ready to go whenever you'd mm-hmm. like. Okay.
5: What We Bury. What We Bury has as much bearing on our fate as how we bury it. I wrap unwelcome thoughts in newspaper, crumple them up and encase them in concrete, then launch my handmade meteorite into outer space. Sometimes I watch it compress, then fall and fall and fall. And if I'm still watching, I see it consumed by an immeasurable black hole. When the sin or phobia is great enough, I might observe the rocket that transports it in meticulous detail, mapping its flight pattern out of the atmosphere before following the trajectory of my intellectual waste into nothingness. What we bury has as little bearing on our fate as how we bury it.
0: Very nice. I love the last couplet that was, or last <laughs> stanza there. What We Bury by Caitlin Buxbaum. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing that, Caitlin.
5: Yeah, it was just kind of like when I have a thought that freaks me out. That's sort of my process of dealing with it. So,
0: yeah, there you go. Awesome. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. Have a good night.
5: Yeah, you too. Bye.
0: Let's see. Who is next? We'll call up 270 and see who that is. And I still have not written down people's actual names with their phone numbers. I have to do my contact list sometime. But we'll see who 270 is. Hello? Hey, this is Tim from Reddle. Did you want to share a prop poem tonight? Uh, yeah. And who am I talking to?
1: This is Cameron Gray.
0: Ah, hey, Cameron. Good. Thanks for, so much for joining us. Um, let me see. Did you? Let me try to find it.
1: Let's, I emailed it, but I emailed it recently.
0: Okay. Um, let's see.
1: I think the subject says phobia.
0: Phobias. Okay. Um, July 17th. Um, hmm, I'm not seeing it here. Gmail to open mic at rattle.com. This happened last time too, actually. Refresh. Yeah. Oh, here it is. It just came in seconds ago. Okay. 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 So this is Yes Dear. And, and do you yeah. want to say anything about what it's about?
1: Uh, I think it's self explanatory. I don't think there's an actual name for the fear that I'm talking about, but I think you'll get it. Hopefully.
0: Okay, well, give me I'm a just one. I'm going to read it. Okay, one second, and I will get it up. I want to make sure I don't show your email address. Okay, here we go. Oops. Hang on, just bear with me for one second. Okay, here we go. I got the right thing. This is Yes, Dear.
1: Okay. Yes, Dear. Arvel Gray was his name. He lived in a hospital bed with my great aunt, Mayetta. His eyes never able to meet mine. Sometimes he would jerk thrust his hands up, grab the air, and bounce. Mayetta would say, Are you driving your tractor, Daddy? Always circling around, emptying bags and changing tubes. At every visit, there were syringes, administering medication with no reaction from Papa. Vegetables come from the garden. They are delicious with butter. Why call him a vegetable? Vegetable. Let's just say I never got it. Aneurysms. When a perfectly good brain decides to start blowing bubbles, leaving a shell of a man that didn't even know I was there. Arvel came from the garden, and a group of sad, scared, selfish people waited far too long to return him. So, yes, dear, I understand perfectly when you say, please don't ever let them do that to me.
0: Oh, that was a heartbreaking poem and a great reading. Thanks so much for, for sharing that with us. And then it was uh, Cameron um, Gray. Cameron Gray, thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, very powerful poem. Thanks so much, Cameron. Uh, let's see, who is next? Uh, let's go with Michelle Parks. Hey there, Michelle. How are you doing tonight?
6: I'm okay. How are you?
0: I'm good, good. Um, I don't know if you want to turn your video or not, but if you do, you haven't hit it yet. Yeah,
6: I was trying to. I'm not very multi-talented.
0: <laughs> well, that's all right. Um, so your poem was Journals. Uh, do you want to say anything about what your phobia was?
6: Um, it's a mix of phobias, I think, because I I love writing, and I love going to open mics occasionally. Um, But it's gotten harder for me over the years because of my physical disabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's something about putting yourself out there. Because it's like releasing your security blanket. Words become like your walls and your comfort. And when you're letting go of them, it's kind of opening you up to this rawness that you may not be prepared for so I have a terrible fear of publication of actually mm. admitting points to be spread wider spread to the world I guess um, and you could call it like doxophobia mm. yeah. or something like that but it's not so much a fear of being praised as it is of Losing those pieces of myself hmm, and much left, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that does. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, doxophobia. And your poem is Journals. It's, it's ready to go whenever you're ready.
6: Awesome. Um, journals. All those years wrapped in soiled tissue beneath pink lipstick kisses. Words I never had courage to whisper. So I pricked my tongue, bled them on paper. So easy to lose the truths we uncover, those about life, pain, love. It's been a lifetime since I cried those tears. Still I choke
0: on the rust. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. That That's Michelle Parks with Journals. Um, Always great to hear from you, Michelle. Thanks so much for calling in and and sharing the, the poems out in the world this way
6: thank you very much yeah my pleasure have a good night you
0: too you have a lot of people in the- i don't think we're i'm not sure if we're able to get to everybody because it's already 7:26. i do have to get the kids to bed but let's try um let's try the 773 number see who that is hello hey this is tim with rattle did you want to share a poem
7: I did. Hey, it's Jessica.
0: Hey, Jessica. I thought oh. I recognized your voice. Um, how are you doing tonight?
7: <laughs> I'm doing really well. How are you?
0: I'm great. Yeah, have a good night. I, I really liked uh, talking to David. It was a fun episode for me. Um,
7: it was really informative, too. It was, like, yeah. Like he's like I, a wealth was, like, of knowledge. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> definitely. I bet he's a good teacher. That was one of the things I was thinking. Um, so, so what was your phobia poem?
7: Um, well, I kind of feel like a fool because the second I called this number to get my place in the queue, I was like, why the hell didn't I make my phobia a fear of public speaking?
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um,
7: I actually wrote about, um, so I guess it's called thanatophobia, which is referred to as death anxiety. Um, I understand I'm going to die. I'm not ignorant of it. I just have a problem of I don't. I don't want to. I, I can't really explain it. But if yeah. anybody else has it, they'll they'll be able to understand it. But I've been like reading things about dying to get comfortable about it. And I'm just like still mm-hmm. not there. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know if it will help. But the, the thing I always think of is, um, you know, before you were born, you were already in the same state as when you were dead, right? <laughs> and so it's, you've already so experienced unfair. the same thing, you know.
7: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point um but now that i am aware of my existence it seems uh not great to just have it go away yeah I guess.
0: Well, well definitely i would prefer prefer not to lose mine either so um <laughs> so this is god willing it's ready whenever you are
7: okay um first i'm gonna say a quote um i understand that woody allen is definitely a part of uh the cancel can- cancel culture um mm-hmm. but he had a great quote and it's um i'm not afraid of dying i just don't want to be there when it happens and i feel like that sums me up
0: so yeah that is a good quote okay
7: so god willing i'll be in a clean pair of underwear when i go and hopefully it won't be messy or tragic or wildly preventable or by my own hands or uncomfortable in any way or when i'm too young or right before my kid's birthday because that really sucks a kid up i should know and I hope that the radio is on, it's playing a good song and not some commercial for mattress firm, which must be a front for something illegal because I never see anyone shopping at one, but somehow they're everywhere. God willing, my world won't ever go black on me unless I'm sleeping, and even then it's a little scary because I wouldn't know if I didn't wake up, and that would mean you didn't wake up because how could a world exist that isn't the world I see when I'm awake? And how could you exist outside of me if I am no longer here, breathing the air, rotating the earth, orbiting the sun, carrying the galaxy? God willing, I won't lose the universe.
0: Oh, that's a great poem. Thanks so much. It was Jessica Dawson with God willing. It's so funny that you brought up um, <laughs> Mattress Firm. There's one right across the Target from where we you know, go to Target and um, we always say the exact same thing: that if that's not a money laundering front, I don't know what is.
7: <laughs> oh, it's the perfect one, yeah.
0: <laughs> it really is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every every uh, every mattress was eight thousand dollars. IRS, I swear. Um, anyway, Nobody's buying a mattress in a store these
7: days. Either. I know, They're really, them yeah. Online in a box, like we did. Like that is people. bizarre. Anyway. Someone needs to do
0: like an investigation. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, thanks so much for calling and sharing that, Jessica. It's always a pleasure
7: thank you thank
0: you have a great night you too um let's see who we can have here um hey this is tim with rattle did you want to share a poem
4: sure tim it's kathy gibbons how are you ah, good hey
0: kathy how are you doing tonight
4: good good i cheated a little bit i didn't write this poem this week but it is about a phobia so i wasn't sure if
0: that's <laughs> okay yeah let's, let's let's go ahead and hear it and what's your phobia
4: Um, It's about water. It's it's kind of thoughts about things that we are afraid of that are still essential to us. And so, how do you do that, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, go ahead whenever you're ready. It's on the screen. Okay.
4: It's called, Sometimes When It's Wet, I Dream of Dry, as if that could quench my thirst. How strange to think I am afraid of water, still. Sitting at my desk in grade school in the winter... I contemplate the depth and danger of the ocean where I swim so free each summer. How could I dare? Sitting at this table as an elder in September, I contemplate this simple glass of water and remember when my city drowned. How could I live? But then I did. Imagine where the bubble balanced at the top. Some wild child whooshed us through a wand clapping hands, delighted till we shrank and landed flat, still room to rise above, beneath us undiscovered emptiness, water speaking volumes, framed by glass striated curtains, some kind of clear kaleidoscope waiting to be spun. How strange to be afraid of water still, floating wrapped in call within a womb, how dare I doubt? How could I live
0: without? Thanks so much. That was Kathy Gibbons from Houston, which is a worthy of note, sharing, Sometimes when it's wet, I dream of dry, as if that could quench my thirst. Really, great poem. Thanks, Kathy. How, how are a things post doing? That in... poem. What's that?
4: <laughs> that was a post-Harvey poem. Post-
0: yeah, post-Harvey. yeah. That's what I was going to say. That's how are things now with Harvey? Is it sort of like everything is back to normal? No. Or were th- th- some things like ruined beyond repair?
4: Well... The dams were never really repaired to mm. where they should be. So we, uh, I'm personally, I'm living in a little bit of fear right now because of the virus, coupled with the potential of hurricanes coming in.
0: And yeah, definitely same thing here. We're right on the fault. So I'm thinking, like, God, if we have a, if we have the San Andreas fault going right when there's a pandemic or a forest fire, I don't want two things at once. Yeah, <laughs> there's
4: so many phobias, right? And yeah, my really. main one is someday I would like to show my face on Skype, but i have <laughs> a big be about that well anyway. whenever
0: you're ready we, we have it you <laughs> be your first time showing your face on uh on, on the internet okay. <laughs> thank you okay. tim okay. yeah thanks kathy always great to hear from you have a good night bye-bye bye okay um let's do one more trying to do somebody i think we'll do just one more i know angela and, and richard westheimer um You guys are around a a lot, so I think we'll skip you tonight. Sorry, everybody. There's just not enough room for everybody. But I don't think we've done the 706 number, so we'll see who that is. Hello? Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share a poem for the prompt? Yes. And who am I talking to?
2: Mirabade Carr. Ah,
0: um, thanks so much for, for calling in. Um, let me try to find your poem. Did you email it to me?
2: Yes, um... It was about four days. Before. Oh, okay.
0: I see it down here. So this is latrophobia. What is latrophobia? I've never heard of that one before.
2: It's a fear of doctors.
0: Ah, interesting. Is there anything you want to say about it, or do you just want to read the poem?
2: Uh, I think I just want to read it because um, I don't say the word doctors. I wonder how it reads. Interesting.
0: Okay, yeah. Well, go ahead whenever you're ready. Latrophobia.
2: Okay. I lived with my dad in the summer, I'd wake in the morning contracted, feeling like I was in the bay across the street, tossed around like sand and seaweed, filled to the brink with salty water, water. heavy minerals settling then scattering, clinking and colliding in my gut, I'd ask to stay home from camp, he'd tap his seat, blow steam from his ears, concentrate a gaze at his wristwatch as if to ask it to stop moving, stop ticking. He'd fall to his knees to pray, lean over my bed to plead with me, and climb the ceiling like a giant spider, venom dripping from his mouth, webs spinning around me. He'd come back down, take me to the hospital. They'd ask me why I wouldn't talk. My eyes would be swollen at that point, red and webbed, pupils darting downwards from policing eyes, the strangers with their clipboards, a decade later, I sat in a room with a dozen or so, women and girls. We were called out one by one after taking a giant bike a dinner two, Pinocchio playing on a TV from the 80s set against the no- linoleum tile, pool green walls and myself, also from the 80s, then a child's portion of out of season watery fruit from Denny's dancing in my stomach. I thought of my womb. I thought of the men wanting this from me and their child's portion of responsibility. The strangers called me to a room, a white-haired man, a black-haired woman, laid me back on a blue-green table, told me I wouldn't feel it, and pinched my cervix with the frozen edge of metal. I screamed, they spun a rib around me. Their eyes flashed red and wide like a ticking alarm clock. Their rhythmic reprimands echoed inside me and my eyes were swollen and damp when they finished, or rather vanished from my sight. They've never finished, the strangers.
0: Oh, powerful poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, yeah, very memorable. Um, and that, once again, that was Meribade um, 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 Car Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah. Maribade. Great to hear from you. Always lovely to have uh, first-time callers, too.
2: Yeah, I was nervous, but <laughs> <Thanks> <laughs> well, for you following. did great.
0: It was an excellent reading and a really, really powerful poem. So, thanks for sharing it. Thank you. Have a good night. Me too. Bye. Bye. So that is this show for tonight. Hope you enjoyed it. Sorry to everybody we couldn't get to. There's like five more people on the list, but uh, I really have to get going. It's it's. I want to end these at after 90 minutes, and it's 98 so far. So, um, uh, but next week we'll definitely get to you uh, if we didn't this week. Um now next week on the Rattlecast, let me show that really quick. The poet will be uh Courtney Campa in her book Our Lady of Not Asking Why. Uh Courtney Campa um kind of a reclusive poet. It's hard to track her down, but um an amazing amazing poet starting I think she was one of Gregory Orr's students and she started winning or becoming finalist for the Rattle Poetry Prize like year after year. Uh with really wonderful poems, she was winner of the Reader's Choice Award, I think um, one of those years. Yeah. So, so we published about maybe eight of her poems. Um, and just a wonderful poet looking forward to talking to her next Tuesday. And I almost forgot, like I keep doing because by the time we move through, there's so much going on. Um, I almost forgot to do the prop for next week. So let me do the prop for next week. And the prop for next week is Write a poem in a form you've never tried before. So that's next week's prompt. Write a poem in a form you've never tried before. Pretty open-ended. And Megan has a suggestion for everybody. Writer's Digest has compiled a great list of um, poetic forms. Um, You can go to, if you just type in Writer's Digest poetic forms, it'll come up, but there's the, the URL on the website. Friend of the show, Robert Lee Brewer, um, um, is sort of the poetry editor, I think maybe his title for, for writer digest. And, um, he compiled this list originally 50 forms. Now there's a hundred forms. Actually, I could show that on screen. Um, yeah, here it goes as well. doesn't really fit. Um, but a list of a hundred poetic forms for poets. So check that out. Find a form you haven't written before. And, um, and then write a poem in that form. So that is the prompt for next week. And next week's guest will be Courtney Campa in Rattlecast number 51. Uh, we will also, as always, we'll have the Critique of the Week on Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. And I think we will have the Open Mic Show uh, on Sunday. I think what we're going to do for the Open Mic, just if you're wondering, for Poetry Live is um, when there are enough poems with enough like different subjects going on, um, we'll have a Poetry Spawn Live. I'll make a post on Facebook and Twitter. So check that Saturday and um, and I'll let you know. Or you can check YouTube. There'll be a YouTube, you know, the video will be up the day ahead of time. But if we get enough poems where there's a good sort of diversity and interesting topics, we'll do Poetry Spawn Live. Um, and if it's sort of a slower week, we won't. I think that's how we're going to do it from now on. Um, so it's sort of going to be a hit and miss on Sundays. I oh, hope that's okay for everybody. If 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 there's enough people who want to do it every week, regardless, even if it's a short show, let me know. Maybe we'll just do it every week. Um, but it is a summer, and um, poet response submissions tend to die down a little bit in the summer as people are sort of enjoying the weather and things like that, which is understandable. And um, after the big coronavirus sort of onslaught of poems, the deluge. Um, things are slowly, have slowly come back to normal, so we're getting about 200 submissions a week instead of a thousand, uh, so so it makes more sense to do it sort of some weekends and, and some not, so I think that's what we're going to do, but uh, let me know what you think if you, if you want, um, and that is all. Once again, next week's guest is Courtney Campa, and I will see you then. Have a great rest of your week. Good night.